Hello and welcome to Please Expand. I'm your host, Ahindis Rockney, and today I'll be interviewing Seb Falk on his most recent book, The Light Ages. I also have a special guest with me today who will be helping me with the interview, and that is my good friend, the novelist, J.A. Velasco. Welcome on the podcast, Jay. Thank you very much. Why don't you tell everyone a bit about yourself? <laughs> How long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. I am J.A. Velasco. I'm a novelist currently working on, as you know, my first novel. I do know, yeah. I thank you. I've been and following I, your work closely. I thank you very much. And uh, well, we met many years ago at the University of Warwick. That's right. Yeah. So, yes, I'm very happy and very excited to be here. And, uh, and how, how did you find the book? What was your what was your overall impression of the light ages? Look, I mean, you know my position on this medieval people. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah well. it takes more than a book to convince me. Uh, but I must say that barbarous line. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was a wonderful uh, book, very thoroughly written. I mean, at parts it was quite complex. I mean, it, it, yeah. the, the language was quite heavy at points, but. I honestly enjoyed it very much, and I learned a lot. The Albion still blew my mind. Yeah, that was mental. But yes. Great. So, yeah, as I said, we'll be interviewing Seb Falk on the Light Ages. In the interview, we'll talk about how the Middle Ages weren't that bad, how Christian and Muslim scholars exchange information, the many inventions produced by the Middle Ages, and the thorny question of whether we can call these activities science. As before, there will be a brief post-interview reflection segment where Jay and I will discuss themes raised by the interview in a little more depth. But, without any further ado, I give you Seb Falk. Get ready. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Please Expand. I'm Mahilius Rockney, and today we're very happy to have with us Dr. Seb Falk, author of The Light Ages. Uh, Seb, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's just start with the, the premise of your book, The Light Ages. Uh, as we understand your book, what you're trying to do is to shine a light on the so-called Dark Ages. Maybe we could start off by you telling us a bit about why this period has been considered in such a negative light, especially when it comes to assessing its contributions to science. Yeah, it's, of course, a well-known story that comes out of the Renaissance uh, and the Renaissance attempts to define themselves as rediscovering ancient wisdom, ancient knowledge, the knowledge of uh, Greece and Rome, uh, and in so doing, to mark out their period as being an improvement on what had come before. Uh, and the Middle Ages becomes called the Middle Ages because uh, it is this period between the Classical period uh, and the Renaissance. And that characterization stuck and it got picked up and carried on and developed, and particularly in Protestant countries in, in Western Europe uh, and in North America after the Reformation, it was used as a stick to beat Catholics with as well, to say uh, that, that the pre-Reformation uh, medieval Europe being Catholic uh, was ignorant uh, and above all had no understanding of rationalism uh, and of science and was superstitious. And uh, and so these ideas get picked up. But to be honest, often medieval doesn't come from any position of knowledge or even an attempt to denigrate the Middle Ages. It's just simply a kind of lazy characterization that says, well, people in the past must have been stupid. They didn't know anything. They all thought the world was flat. Uh, and I went 
into writing this book uh, for a general audience, wanting to to tell people about some of the amazing ideas uh, of the Middle Ages. Uh, so wanting to rehabilitate the word medieval to some extent, wanting people to think, well, actually, uh, there's some wonderful things, some fantastic ideas, some great ingenuity and invention that happens in the Middle Ages. But also, importantly, to put science into medieval history so that if people are interested in the Middle Ages, if people are interested in uh, kings and battles, why shouldn't they also be interested in scientific ideas and technological development of that period as well? Um, so in in your book, we, as you mentioned, we go through many medieval thinkers and we go from Baghdad to St. Albans and you claim that they were engaged in scientific activity. What really interests us is the extent to which we can call these activities science. And in a way, it's sort of difficult to read a book about the history of science a particular, in a particular period of time without thinking of Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. And we were wondering first, what are the criteria by which you judge their activities to be properly scientific? And second, how do you see the arguments in your book in relation to Thomas Kuhn's theoretical framework? Do you think what happened in the Middle, uh, in the middle Ages was some sort of uh, pre-paradigm uh, science? Was it normal science? What, what do you make of it? Yeah, those are interesting questions. I mean, I think, uh, as I've already said, I'm, I'm starting from a kind of fairly unambitious position in a way, in that I, I am not trying to make the claim that what was happening in the Middle Ages was, was modern science as we would understand it. And I use the uh, the word science slightly uh, hesitantly as i make clear i think in my prologue and i uh, there's a slight apology in my acknowledgments to andrew cunningham uh, who taught me here in cambridge uh, <laughs> who was a very strong opponent of the use of the word science for for medieval periods and i i thought about this long and hard and eventually i i came down on the side of the argument put forward, I think, quite well by uh, Michael Shank and David Lindbergh in the introduction to their volume two of the Cambridge History of Science, where they say that what we are talking about when we talk about medieval science is something that has a family resemblance. That's the phrase they use, a family resemblance uh, to modern science. And so we shouldn't expect to see everything the same. But the point is, really, if we study history of science, and I'm based in a department of history and philosophy of science, if we study history of science, we have to have some kind of understanding in our head of what it is that we're studying. So if I'm allowed to talk about the Middle Ages at all in my department of history and philosophy of science, then I must have some kind of sense that there is some connection, even if we have to caveat it with these really important statements that what people thought they were doing in the Middle Ages when they were looking at the natural world was very different from what scientists think they're doing when they're looking at the natural world today. And so in some ways, yes, Andrew Cunningham is right. It is an entirely different enterprise. And so giving it the same name could be confusing, could be misleading. But I think for the audience that I was writing for, this general audience, I didn't have a problem with that. Uh, and I have gradually slipped in my usage, uh, actually. I used to be very careful um, never to say medieval science, and at worst, to say medieval sciences. 
and talk about the sciences above all. And then when I teach undergraduates, I, I say the same thing. Talk about the sciences, talk about astronomy, talk about mathematics, talk about uh, arithmetic. You're on safe ground there. Science, of course, includes theology if, if you're using the Latin word scientia in the Middle Ages. And I have slightly slipped. I do now, you will occasionally hear me use the phrase medieval science. But as I say in my book, it is a, it is a slightly dangerous term. And I certainly would not use the word scientist because I think that is too specific. Yes. But to answer your question about Thomas Kuhn. I mean, I think it's it's probably fair to say that in his terms, what's happening in the Middle Ages is kind of normal science. Um, right. That that these are people who are who are doing their thing. They are developing ideas. They are refining. They are tweaking. They are making no claims to anything revolutionary. And indeed, it would be antithetical to the kind of principles of medieval uh, sciences. I think to to overturn to to undergo a revolution because of course um, they saw their work above all as rediscovering and recovering and um, tweaking and refining the ideas uh, of ancient. Uh, thinkers, ancient philosophers. Uh, and I think actually it fits perfectly well. And of course, Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions was built on his work on Copernicus. So it's hardly surprising, actually, it does fit his his um, his, his paradigm. Uh, it does fit his his way of thinking quite well. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't have a problem with that, with that characterization of it. But as I say, I think the purpose of my book uh, above all, is is to look less at this long vertical history of science from ancient to modern, and more at this horizontal history of the Middle Ages, and to put science into that history of the Middle Ages. When you talk about the family resemblances, are you sort of broadly speaking about uh, observing the natural world and drawing conclusions about it? Is that what you're going for? Yeah, observation of the natural world, try to understand how things work. Of course, there's this this classic tension uh, in in medieval science between the the science of Aristotle, which um, seeks to answer how and why questions. Uh, you know, why is is something the way it is? How does it come to be that way? How do things work? How are things connected? Um, you know, the, the the classic sort of four causes uh, of Aristotle um, to try to explain how things come to be the way they are. No, it is a, a very scientific goal. Uh, but of course, um, the simple characterization that's often made is that modern science mathematizes this. But of course, you do find mathematical science in the Middle Ages as well. And that's where the tension lies between the astronomers who are desperately trying to, to, to compute positions, to understand, to predict uh, exactly where things will be at a certain time in a certain place, and perhaps the cosmologists, uh, their 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 cousins, who are trying to understand what things are made of and and why they are the way they are. Um, and there is a sort of tension here, and there is a kind of uh, occasional contradiction between the positions taken by 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 people taking different approaches. But basically, the family resemblance is yes, they're looking at nature, they're trying to understand it. But of course, for Christians in the in the Middle Ages, and and my book, of course, is focused mainly on. Western Europe on on Christian uh, Latin Europe, uh, not even um, barely touching on Byzantium as well. It's an attempt to get inside the mind of God. It's an attempt to understand God through his creation. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. Uh, the end results might be the same, that might not affect them, but the goals, the motivations are very important. Uh, and these are Christians uh, trying to understand how the miracle of creation is expressed through what they see around them. Would you say that that's actually one of the many differences between 
what we call now modern science and, and what is happening in the Middle Ages. Because I remember as we were discussing your book, uh, week by week, I will always bring back the, the point about the precision that wasn't there because if, if you were off by a, a few degrees, we know with the Astrolab, the rest of the tabulation will be wrong. And I always thought about what these people are trying to do is to understand a god who left them in this world without an instructions manual, without a manuscript. Whereas now I feel when when scientists do science, they might have religious beliefs, but that all of that sort of subjectivity has to go outside but because of the idea of the laboratory. And I wonder if there is a sort of individual laboratory on the nor in the modern scientists that wasn't in the middle aged scientists. Yeah. Um I mean I think your 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 basic point is is absolutely right. That modern science is not atheistic. It's uh well it is atheistic in the literal sense of being God doesn't enter into it. Yeah. Whether you have a position or God isn't on God is neither here nor there. It, it, modern science doesn't say there is no God. Modern science says we don't care. Uh, and I suppose insofar as modern science has a position on God, it, it says that God is not interventionist. So if God exists, then then God doesn't change the, the rules of the universe and right. certainly not um, willy-nilly. So yes, of course, that is a different position. Uh, that the position of Christian thinkers in the Middle Ages was uh, that God could intervene, even if in practice um, you had to proceed on the assumption that He's not going to, or if He does, that is seen as exceptional. Right. Um, you know, the whole thing about a miracle is it doesn't happen very often; uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be called a miracle. So uh, you can kind of discount miracles fairly easily uh, and just say, well, you know, we know God can do that, but we know he chooses not to. But then, of course, there is the sort of logical positioning as well that, uh, you know, that, for example, in the, the classic cases in the 13th century universities, when um, the theologians uh, of Paris uh, are arguing with the philosophers of Paris University about questions uh, like the existence of a vacuum or or the existence of multiple universes there is that that raises tensions because the the philosophers say well you know logically speaking you can't really have multiple universes and the theologians say well you know if god wants to make multiple universes god can make multiple universes and uh, and they're not really disagreeing because nobody actually thinks there are multiple universes it's just a question of, of you know whether god could do that if he if he felt like it on any given day so you know they're clearly is that difference between medieval and modern science. Uh, and yet, you know, there is, a, there is a similarity in the kind of humility, I think, that scientists take. And this, this, I think, is a distinction between the public understanding of science today and what most scientists who think deeply about their own discipline would say, is that science is a, a deeply creative activity. I mean, there's a wonderful book uh, by a, a, a colleague of mine called Tom McLeish, The Poetry and Music of Science, I'd highly recommend, uh, all about the creativity in the scientific process. And I think that scientists, when they think deeply about what they're doing, know that their endeavours are not trying to find a set of answers that exists out there uh, that one day they'll get to, and then everybody will say job done, science is over, we don't need to do any more, we can all go home and do something else now. Science is never going to be over, uh, let's be honest. Science is always going to be pushing at the boundaries of what we know. And in that sense, it does share some similarities, I think, with uh, medieval thinkers, who again, are very modest. They say, we know we can't know everything. We, we're not 
as clever as God. God is omniscient. There is literally no way we can possibly understand the mind of God. So all we can do is uh, look at it in a in an imperfect mirror, or or you know, however you want to. Um, right you know, whatever metaphor you want to use, we want to try and understand as much as we can of our own tiny little perspective and and get a glimpse of it. And in a way, there there is, I think, a similarity between what modern scientists also are trying to do, knowing that they are just a tiny piece in a puzzle, trying to add their own little piece, but knowing that science is a, is a kind of constantly expanding, constantly developing endeavour. Yeah, one thing that was constantly surprising us as we were reading your book. And it surprised us especially because, as you said, you're not trying to, you're not f- focused on this sort of this, v- this vertical narrative of the history of science. You're really just looking at uh, the Middle Ages. And it was how, many, how often you gave examples of uh, individuals or ways of thinking that seem to satisfy certain criteria for science that someone like David Wooten gives in his book, The Invention of Science. One of the criterion of the criteria that Wooten talks about is the invention of the printing press. People talk a lot about the printing press and how it revolutionized, how people uh, communicated. But in, in your book, you talk often about how manuscripts and astronomical tables were copied and transferred across continents. And there seems to be this, this large net of thinkers whose works would interact. Uh, that said, do you think the printing press created a different different world before, such that it fostered a new kind of mental sphere that down the line concluded in something in a, in like a different kind of activity to the activity we see in the Middle Ages? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, of course, it did because ultimately it leads to the modern world, and people think differently now from how they thought differently in the Middle Ages. So somewhere, if you want to draw a line, you have to draw a line and say, you know, something has changed. Um, a mental sphere. I mean, it's very hard to talk about how people thought because people are all individuals and everybody thinks in different ways. Uh, my, my, you know, I would absolutely agree that the printing press is, uh, um, you know, an in- incredibly important agent of change, uh, to use the phrase of Elizabeth Eisenstein, the great historian of this, in terms of affecting how science can proceed and and thereby how people think. But of course it doesn't change overnight. And many of the factors that make the printing press successful and make the printing press an important agent of change uh, in science have to be there beforehand. Otherwise, it, it couldn't make the difference that it did. So, you know, I uh, David Wooten's book is, is an excellent book. I agree with it in many ways. And of course, he points out uh, at the beginning that astronomy, which is the science that I mainly focus on in my book, was uh, the most kind of modern of sciences um, before the period that he talks about. So, you know, there are areas in which we disagree, but in general, you know, it's quite hard. I couldn't possibly say that everything that's uh, necessary for modern science is already present in the Middle Ages. That would be ridiculous. But what you do have, I think, is that often um, people say, well, before the printing press, it was impossible to get hold of texts, or before the printing press, um, uh, books were were unreachably expensive. Before the printing press, uh, nobody could critique other people's work. Uh, you know, these are all very sometimes lazy generalizations. Of course, you know, they can the arguments can be made in more or less subtle ways. But the point is, yes, of course, printing made it easier to get hold of texts. Yes, of course, 
printing made it easier to produce new editions of texts. It made it easier to draw up accurate diagrams, or, or not necessarily accurate diagrams, but um, more intricate and precise and detailed uh, diagrams. Printing, of course, gave the opportunities to people like Copernicus uh, to read uh, lots and lots of different pieces of data and arguments, and it made it possible for ideas to spread widely um, you know, across uh, Europe and, and of course, to, to bring in and popularise ideas um, from Byzantium as well um, at the start of the Renaissance. So, you know, printing has an absolutely important impact. But the point that I wanted to make is simply that the conditions for that impact, the desire to recover ancient ideas, the desire to build on them and develop them was absolutely present in the Middle Ages. And without that desire, printing wouldn't have had uh, the success that it did. And Yes, of course, texts are harder to come by, but that doesn't mean that they're impossible to come by. And yes, of course, invention, concepts of invention do change, as, as I believe Wooten argues, but that doesn't mean that there was no idea of invention. Um, and I think I would disagree with him slightly on that point that, um, you know, I think that there are, you can see examples of where um, you know, people people do have ideas of invention uh, and uh, innovation uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, and uh, and and you can see many of those in my book. Right. Yeah. That's that, that was what really interested me because it's commonly said that the before a certain period, everyone thought that everything had already been discovered by the ancients, and that any so any appearance of a new discovery was really just a a, a re remembering of what already existed. But that, that's clearly not the case in a number of uh, things that you discuss in your book. I mean, no one thought that the, let's say the Albion, for example, had existed in uh, ancient Greece or Rome, right? Hmm. Although, you know, I kinda, it depends on who you ask, right? And, and the texts are quite difficult to uh, understand in the sense that there's layers of modesty um, and literary tropes going on here. So... Um, you know, Richard of Wallingford writing about his Albion is incredibly modest about, well, he is and he isn't. In places he's modest, in places he's immodest about his achievements. But the underlying point, I suppose, is is that you could say simply that the Albion itself was clearly a new invention, but the Albion is a demonstration or an instantiation of ideas that already existed. So all he's doing, if you want to take the argument that that nobody is inventing anything absolutely new. All he's doing is um, reformatting, is putting ideas that were already there into a new form or making them newly user-friendly. And indeed, that was the general goal of most astronomy in this period, uh, was this modest goal of making things more user-friendly, making things more accessible. But then, you know, you could say the same about technology today, right? Um, you can make much more money by tweaking an iPhone uh, than by coming up with an entirely new piece of technology. So this kind of idea of tweaking and making incremental improvements is one that we find very much in the Middle Ages. And I think you could put that together with this idea of modesty and say uh, that, yes, people in the Middle Ages mostly didn't, you know, thought that they weren't inventing new things. Uh, they were just reaching a better understanding of ideas that were present in ancient thought and uh, and and known of course um back at, at, at creation in the garden of eden before the fall so yeah it's it's a difficult one i mean i 
in a way, probably the only sensible answer to this question is to say, well, every individual has a different point of view. So it, it, it may not be very helpful to generalize. But absolutely, whatever Richard of Wallingford or his contemporaries might have said about their potential to invent things, they certainly went and did it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So the distinction seems to be between sort of ideas which are sort of eternal and the actual devices which help transmit the yeah. ideas. And, and that's what's sort of the new thing for them, the devices. Yeah. Okay. Right. So the next question that we have is, uh, I have this um, idea about when we think modern science, we think about the tests of experience and experiments. In your book, you mention, uh, you give an example of individuals such as Pedro Alfonso, uh, a Spanish mm -hmm. converso, I was generally surprised to see that he urged his contemporaries to abandon outdated texts to learn in, in, instead of to learn from experience. I wonder if um, you could say a bit more how individuals like Pedro Alfonso understood the idea of learning from practice. Yeah, um, it's a big question. The, the basic premise, I guess, is to understand if these people go back to Aristotle, who was the kind of touchstone for understanding epistemology, understanding how we can know things at all, there is always the starting point um, that every knowledge, every piece of knowledge that we have ultimately comes to us through our senses. So there is a kind of a sense that, yes, we, we do always ultimately learn through observation. We do ultimately learn through experiment. Of course, experiment, uh, and this is where it gets a bit complicated in the Latin experimentum, uh, is means experience, right? It means something that you that has happened to you um, or that you have undergone. And so there's no distinction between experience and experiment, experience being something kind of passive that you have right. and experiment being something active that you set out to do in a controlled manner. That just doesn't exist in medieval Latin. And so what you see is a kind of development of uh, the ideas of Aristotle in uh, medieval Europe and indeed in medieval Islam as well. Um, and, um, and a key figure in this is uh, Ibn al-Haytham uh, and the concept of itibar, uh, which is again a kind of concept of experience, experiment, controlled experience, organized experience. There are kind of layers of this and you can see the idea developing in Robert Grossetest, the, the 13th um, century uh, scholar and his commentary on Aristotle and Roger Bacon uh, picking up the ideas of Robert Grossetest. So there are lots of different people and they have lots of different ideas about how to work with experience. But the, the basic uh, point, I suppose, is that uh, we as individuals only have our own experiences to go by plus, of course, what we learn from written texts uh, and revelation, uh, indeed, uh, in what, what is revealed to us by God. So uh, for these people, they have to balance all these different inputs and they have to try and grapple with the notion of knowledge as being something universal, that I can know something sitting here, that you can also know where you are, and somehow we can both know the same thing, even though we've had limited experience of it from different sides. So this is the very very active debate in uh, later medieval Europe, uh, and different people have their own points of view on it. And the really interesting thing, I think, for historians is to try to square these philosophical debates that are being had about, you know, ideas like a universal intellect and, and these kinds of things that are coming in from 
uh, people who are commenting on Muslim philosophers like Averroes, squaring these kind of philosophical debates with the practical uh, search for knowledge of someone like Pedro Alfonso, Petrus Alfonsi, um, to give him his Latin name, who is... Uh, kind of a practical man as well. You know, he is, he is teaching, he is observing. And uh, when you observe the skies, you are making a, a kind of experiment where you are testing the inherited knowledge or testing the predictions um, that have come to you through mathematical tables or that you have uh, you have looked at uh, mathematically. You've, you've tried to work out when an eclipse is going to take place using tables, using uh, theories, and then you observe it in the sky and you say, well, is it in the same place? That's clearly a, an experiment. Um, but it's not, of course, an experiment in the modern sense um, of being uh, something that is very controlled, that is very repeatable. So you start to kind of get into very hazy notions about modern science, which, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it leads you down all kinds of interesting paths. Right. In fact, one of the beauties of, of, of the book, in fact, was uh, for us to discuss how it seems that there was a properly international community of scientists of, um, I, would, uh, you I, I wouldn't say that, just to be on the, on the safe side. That's fine, that's fine. <laughs> um, actually sort of exchanging ideas. So there wasn't this, you know, um, we're not going to read his work because he's from a different religion, because he's Muslim, because he's not Muslim. There, there, there seems people were seem to intaking and, um, and exchanging information. And I think it really speaks of the spirit of knowledge. I wonder, though, because uh, obviously when I think of... Um, one of the ideas behind David Wooten's uh, conception of scientists is that, that there is this community of experts that they are they, they both collaborate, but they also compete. And I got the collaboration from the Middle Ages, but I didn't get the competition. And for some reason, that felt much more enlightening in a way, funny enough. Um, it felt that, <laughs> that there wasn't much competition, but rather it was more to do with collaboration more than anything. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting question to what extent people in the Middle Ages saw themselves as collaborating, because one thing they are very keen to do is to cite their authorities and cite their sources. Uh, you know, they have an incredible scholarly uh, conscience right. uh, on this, of which any uh, any student should be, should be uh, yes. proud and be aspiring to in terms of always citing your sources. But the question of whether, you know, say a Christian who is citing the work of a Muslim scholar like Al-Batani or, or uh, Al-Kabisi or, you know, a Muslim astronomer whose work is useful to a Christian, you know, 50, 100, 200 years later, whether they saw themselves as a, in a collaboration with that person is kind of open to question. Certainly, absolutely, these Christians have no problem with picking up and using the ideas of Muslim and Jewish uh, and uh, ancient Greek scholars, uh, just as the Muslims, of course, had no problem using uh, the ideas of the, the Greeks and Christians that were handed down to them. Right. The question of whether they see themselves as a collaboration is, is quite an interesting one, I think. And, uh, and possibly the point I mean, I think it's really a question that the that the medieval Christians don't really consider. Um, that they see the ideas and they want to say where the ideas come from because it's a it's a matter of sort of professional conscience in a way. But the founding principle is, you know, one that they've inherited from 
um, the church fathers, uh, including you know Augustine, uh, which is that no matter where these ideas come from, they can be useful. This concept of Egyptian gold, uh, which is quite a nice metaphor that that is popularised in the early medieval period, uh, that pagan ideas are like the gold uh, which the Israelites stole, um, legitimately stole uh, from Egypt as they were fleeing slavery in Egypt. They took with them the gold of the pharaohs uh, and they used that gold for their own purposes. And that gold uh, is useful to them. And even though it came from a bad place, is something that they can still legitimately use. And in the same way, the pagan ideas were ideas that could still be legitimately used by, uh, by, by Christians, even devout Christians, and even sometimes in the, in the service of theology. So, you know, and, and Augustine himself uh, and, and his followers are very clear about this, that, uh, of course, uh, these pagans, these, uh, these non-Christians are not authorities on Christianity, but nonetheless, their ideas could be useful in the service of theology. So science and theology, of course, are never separate, uh, and, and indeed in this case too. Yeah, in the bulk of your book, it mostly just seems to be people are just happy to have these texts handed down to them and to uh, use the information. You give one really amusing example of Roger Bacon savagely criticizing this one French scholar, (laughs) which was very nice. It shows that nothing has changed in a thousand years. (laughs) Yes. But just to that point, obviously there must have been criticism between people. Was that criticism out of a sense of sort of competition or like... um, and like an intellectual arms race who gets the idea first or correctly or was it something else yeah i mean there are some fascinating personalities and i think all these personalities are are different i think you definitely get a sense of competition people defending the pride of their order or the pride of their monastery so uh, you know, there's a there's an underlying sense that the kind of Franciscans saw themselves as up against the Dominicans, or that uh, you know a, a monk of St Albans feels that he has to defend the work of Richard of Wallingford because he was a former abbot of St Albans. So I think there's a kind of sense of they're defending the pride in the same way that you know you wouldn't if you support a football team today uh, you might bemoan the poor performance of your own football team last yeah. night whoever you know they just got beaten but if somebody from a supporter of an opposing team you know you're a Liverpool fan Liverpool got beaten and then some Evertonian comes along and says look Liverpool are awful you're going to defend your team even if five minutes ago you were just slating them so I think there's there's always this kind of sense of pride and this sense of loyalty and yes individual individual pride too but that is you know a, a mortal sin right pride is is something that christians should avoid and so of course it exists but very few people are going to admit to it and i think it, it, it the the sense of kind of loyalty to the ideas um, comes out more uh, and of course yes competition but given the kinds of texts that we're dealing with and that the kinds of texts that survive uh, these sort of personal things are pretty rare, and Roger Bacon is quite unusual in putting these things down. And that we're lucky that they've survived, and you know his writings survive at great length in a way that they don't for for others. But generally speaking, you know you kind of look at the manuscripts of scientific treatises and textbooks, and you think, well, where where would I find this? You know, there's just not an opportunity for these things to crop up, and they kind of show up 
in odd places. But but generally speaking, I think we have an evidential problem there as well. So, you know, I think some of that personality gets a bit lost and we have to grab hold of it when we find it. Um, but if humans are humans, you know, they're jealous, they're proud, um, you know, just in, in the past, just as they are today. And it should also, I suppose, go back to kind of a theological principle of if we're using science, if we are doing these tabulations and, and we're using all these uh, instruments to try to understand the way God made the world, which God, which God are we talking about? Is it the one that they believe? Is it the one that I believe as a Christian? Is it the one that moves? Which one is it? And that sort surely must have... Yeah, no, I mean, I think it is a really interesting question and it's a parallel question, I think, to the one um, that I alluded to earlier about astronomy and cosmology, right? That you, on the one hand, you think, well, these must have been at the back of people's minds, right? Um, when you are, when you have these debates, you think, surely I should consider what the, what the kind of foundational beliefs of this person were, just as, you know, when you're measuring um, the position of Mars in the sky, should you be thinking about what Mars is made of and whether those epicycle and deferent, um, which work very well as a geometrical model, whether they really exist in reality or whether the reality is somehow different. And, and, and if they do exist in reality, how the orbs intersect and how much space they take up and these kind of big cosmological questions, which aren't necessary to a correct calculation of the position of Mars. And I think there's a, there's an analogy there, which basically is uh, probably at some level, people think about these questions and they worry about them perhaps occasionally. But when it comes down to the practical day-to-day -day of what they need to achieve, they think, well, this works. I'll I'll, I'll park it. I'll pigeonhole it. I'll, I'll think about it later. And I, I think that probably is, is how most people thought about it. Right. Um, that, you know, maybe occasionally they, they worried about it, but as long as it was useful to them, they kind of, it kept sliding and sliding until, you right. know, another day. Yeah. I mean, it just, I really want to reinstate this. It was really impressive that during the Reconquistas, like Spain, that Castile would take back land and then people in that land who had just been reconquered would contribute to the development of thought in another country in Europe of so yeah, I mean, people, people, people have to get on. I mean, I think the whole kind of, you know, and you, you may know more about this uh, than I do. Um, but uh, I think the idea of kind of Reconquista is, you know, slightly problematic in a sense of being, you know, implying that it belonged to the Christians in the first place yeah, and they're sure. reconquering it. Sure. Um, it is something you kind of have to say, well, put yourself in the mindset of the people there. Most of those people, you know, they had never known anything other than the people that yes. were ruling their territory. And maybe half the time they weren't even aware who was ruling their territory. Because, you know, you look at a modern map and it gives you this impression that there's a very clear borderline drawn and actually things are a lot more fuzzy and, and indistinct uh, in reality. So, you know, I think you see this as well with the Ismailis and 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 the uh, Mongols um, when I'm talking in the final chapter about Tusi uh, and the, um, the observatory at Maraga in what is now Iran, where fundamentally, you've got an astronomer who wants to do his astronomy he just wants to get on he just wants to look at the sky wants people to leave him alone and there's an element of just let me get on with this uh, and then of course the christians that come over to 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 southern spain or central spain in the 12th century who are desperate for the knowledge that they've heard exists there you know people like gerard of cremona who comes over from italy he's heard that he can get hold of the almagest he's heard of the almagest he's desperate to do this to the extent that he teaches himself arabic in order to understand uh, the almagest in arabic now i i i've read the almagest 
it is a bloody difficult text, even in English. So the idea that Gerard of Cremona, uh, being a you know Latinate Italian, can go over and understand and translate uh, the Almagest in Arabic, which of course has been translated from the original Greek, you know, it just blows my mind. Yeah. But these people, you know, they're interested in the in the knowledge. They're interested in what they can get their hands on. They're not so worried about who's ruling which bit of territory. Um, and you know, I suppose if you ask Gerard of Cremona, he'd be pleased that it was a Christian rather than a Muslim. But fundamentally, he probably doesn't. You know, it doesn't make that much difference to him. And the people that he's talking to are interested in in collaboration. Interested in. I mean, I think that's the most most fascinating part of it. Actually, is remembering that. Someone like Gerald of Cremona and the other translators, when they go to somewhere like Spain, they're not just getting hold of manuscripts, copying and translating them, working from parchment with ink. They're also talking to individuals. They are conversing, they're learning, they are receiving instruction on instruments. So there's a real kind of conversation that's going on here. And that's, I think, where you see the real collaboration take place that we were talking about. Right. Wonderful. So just final question. Final question. To wrap things up. Looking towards the future, is there another, well, maybe not the future, but is there another period of history that you think has been particularly prejudiced like the Middle Ages and that deserves <laughs> of light? Yeah, um, I mean, I think, well, the, 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 the Middle Ages was kind of my... Uh, first love and I was always a bit kind of confused as to why nobody ever talked about the ideas or the science of the middle ages and of course people had but you know we always for every new generation we have to kind of make that argument again um you know I'd love to expand some of this uh and to to talk in more detail about what's happening in other parts of the world because although you know I do talk about um different parts of the world in my book it is mainly focused on europe and i'd love to you know make comparisons deeper comparisons with with what's happening in china what's happening uh you know perhaps uh, even in the americas um so uh you know there's there's that there, i mean there, there's so much fascinating history out there uh it's uh i i just want to i finished writing this book i want to go and read everybody else's books now uh, and and learn what they've got to say um and uh, and and i'll think about writing my writing another book myself when i've got caught up with all the history that i've missed while i've been writing it wonderful wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. thank you very much so, well, thank, thank you very much. much for having me take care bye 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 Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Seb Falk. This is the post-interview reflection segment where Jay and I will discuss some of the things from the interview that we thought deserved more attention. Discussion of a discussion. Exactly. Or a meta-discussion, meta as I like to call it, yes. So, Jay, uh, just Tell before me. we get started, yes. what is your overall impression of the book? Uh, what my, look, my overall impression of the book is, I mean, rather positive, you know. it's a, it, it was a very interesting read. I think... You know, overall, there has never been a better time to be a sort of non-fiction writer. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and I accepted your invitation to this podcast because I was compelled to inquire about, you know, how someone could write a book about science at the time, you know, when the systematic enterprise of science as we know it today didn't exist. That Whoa. to me. That okay, to me. okay. So... <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it was an interesting book, but obviously, exactly. you know, it would be like making a book about medicine in pre-Columbian periods. Like, well... Right. Okay, good. So let me stop you there because yes. you already touched on a, a pretty thorny issue of the book. Yes. So first of all, do you think the medieval scholars that Seb describes 
were doing science. Science as Oof. like modern science. You're throwing me here to the to the crucifying <laughs> me. Uh, nailing me to the cross. I would say they were not doing science as not as we know it today. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, I also don't think so, but Seb clearly thinks otherwise. Yeah. You know, for Seb, we can say that they were doing science because what they were doing looks like science. Yeah. You know, what do you think about that? Sure. I mean, it, it, it. I mean, it looked like science, of course. I. I, I don't know. I think. I don't know. You are. You are the philosopher here. <laughs> How can something look like something that didn't exist prior to the concept? Yes. Yeah. I know all the answers. <laughs> what is a, the meaning of meaning? It's yeah. an interesting question. So, I mean, if we think that science is looking at the world around us and drawing conclusions about it, mm. then I suppose we might think that what they were doing in the Middle Ages was science. Yes. But I'm not very satisfied with that because that description can explain all kinds of activities and theories that are clearly not science. I, I agree with you. I mean, it can, it can become sort of a broad concept like that because, look, um, I guess the issue here is if today someone said to me alchemists were scientists, I, I can categorically label that statement as false, knowing what I know now. Mm. However, by Seth's sort of logic... Um, I can't prove the sentence false because for alchemists in the Middle Ages, what they were doing also kind of looked like science. Yeah. And there you go. Therefore, you know, they are scientists. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the issue when you have such a broad concept. But, you know, I think we're being a little unfair to say yeah, because probably. <laughs> he also said that we shouldn't expect science in the Middle Ages to be just like modern science. Right. You know, in the book, in the introduction to the book, actually, he gives the example of war. War studies, you know, war in the Middle Ages was obviously different to how war is nowadays. Mm. And yet we still speak of a single concept of war. And this is a cool point. I mean, why is it that we can talk about war in both the Middle Ages and the modern era, but we might not be able to do the same with science? I, I see what you mean. The, okay, I my inclination to think of this is... I think war is, you know, simply the means by which two entities carry conflict in the pursuit of establishing the winner's ideological position as a de facto unchallenged status quo. Mm. That's what I think it would be like my definition of, of war. You can apply this definition, you know, to bows and arrows, to a tank, to a nuclear warhead, etc. But with science, I'm not very sure you can. Mm. So, yeah, I think what makes this question so interesting is that it engages two different ideas of concepts. On the one hand, concepts, you know, in this case, science, is the, it's the same concept throughout history. And we explain the differences in science by saying that the concept develops over time. Right. On the other hand, we might say that there are actually different concepts and that they're connected with other concepts, but they're not the same as them. So to take Seb's point, it's obviously the case that modern science doesn't just come out of nowhere. It is clearly indebted to a lot of the work that was done before it in the Middle Ages, mm. right? And Seb wants to explain this connection by saying that both activities are science. It's interesting. I, w I was thinking about this the other day, actually. A friend of mine asked me, when does one um, become a writer? Uh, is it, you know, when a person writes the first sentence of the first, you know, ever story you've written or something? Or is it when you finish the book and the book is, you know, you can pick up the book from the shelf at, at your local bookshop? 
Likewise, you know, I thought about it with baking. When does the baker become a baker? You know, when he mixes, I don't know, flour and water for the first time to make his starter, when he opens a bakery and you can, you know, buy the loaf from the baker. Where do you get this bread from from the bakery and who owns the bakery of the baker? Mm. Um, so the question then would be, um, when can we call someone a scientist? Yeah. Okay, so let's stick with the writer example. So the issue seems to be focused on whether you have to be published or not to be a writer. Yeah. But that presupposes an entire social practice of publishing and being an author. Mm. You know, so, sort of so we might make a distinction between being a writer and being an author. You know, when you write your first sentence, you're a writer. But when you get published, you're an author. And this example is interesting because someone might make the same distinction between people doing science in the Middle Ages and modern scientists. Right. Both of them are doing science, as Seb would say, mm. but it is only in the 19th century that the social institution of being a scientist is born. Okay. But we want to know whether they're doing science, right? Yeah. So if we return to your example, the question would be, is a writer doing the same thing as an author? You know, is someone mm. in the Middle Ages doing the same thing as a scientist? Yes, I, 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 you have something pretty good here. I think the answer to your question partly would be yes. Both writer and author do one thing, you know, they write, mm. and that is sort of the common denominator here. The author, however, also engages in other activities regarding his authorness, not authorship, but authorness, mm. um, like going on public talks, signing books, promoting other work, and so on and so on. And just, you know, I would like to think. In a similar way, a post-19th-century scientist engages with other activities of, you know, science, like modern science, like, you know, peer-reviewing, publishing papers, giving lectures at university, getting grants, and so on and so on. Yeah, um, exactly. And that's a really good point, because there's a whole social dimension to being an author that is not part of being a writer. Yeah. And we could say the same thing about being a scientist, or as yeah. about someone who does science. You know, you've already mentioned a pretty important aspect of modern science, peer-reviewing. Yes. You know, so that is a process whereby scientists read each other's work to confirm or critique experimental results. Did that exist in the Middle Ages? I'm not sure. You know, Zeb was pretty hesitant to describe their behavior as collaborative, or at least collaborative in the way that we would understand peer review. Yeah, I agree. I, agree. I, I suppose, you know, there are all the conditions about science and, and, and doing science that require exploration to, you know, fully answer the question. I mean, logically, however, what what you said does make sense. Um, there, uh -huh. there are... Thank you. <laughs> and you should, yeah, I, I wish your listeners could see that face you just made there. <laughs> Thank you for your kind words. Okay, so yeah, I think we've exhausted this topic. Yes. We haven't really answered it, but yeah. I mean, yeah, we're not entirely sure that they were. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 some doubts. I suppose, you know, your podcast isn't really about uh, ultimate truth. Well, no. it should be. But, uh, ultimately, uh, it is. Ultimately, but it is. But it's not delivering. The right the, you, you lay the law of the land <laughs> exactly. in, this, in this auditive space. Uh, so, yes. okay, so we might say something about the idea behind the book. Mm. So, you know, Seb wants to yeah, rehabilitate the I, Middle Ages. I have some feelings about this. <laughs> okay. I, I have feelings towards this thing. Let's, let's hear them. Yes, thank you. Hear me out. So, I've just read Catherine Harvey's fantastic book, uh, The Fires of Lost Sex in the Middle Ages. It's published now, Harpax War. Um, Self-explanatory plot, obviously, Sex in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know... It's a great topic. It's a great topic. Now, both books, The Light Ages and Fires of Lust, begin with this plea 
or I don't know, at, at times it sort of, you know, feels like an exhortation of sorts about, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be mean, but it's like, please don't be mean to the Middle Ages, and they were nice, and, <laughs> and they were not this squalor place that you think it was. Um, and, you know, there are also a few examples of the, of, of, uh, of the usage of the word medieval in a kind of, in its pejorative sense, I right. suppose. Yeah, yeah. So there's the famous example of David Cameron speaking to Parliament where he describes the, yeah. the violent activities of the Islamic State in Syria as medieval. medieval. Yeah, yeah, correct. Uh, in right. fact, the, the book of like, um, Files of Laws does begin with that quotation as well. Okay. Uh, and you know, Seb Folk also touched this topic during the interview, and I, 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 I understand exactly what they're doing, and I also am not saying that they shouldn't do it. I, I do think, um, however, that if you go and ask people in the street, random, um, what they think, the, um, if they think the Middle Ages weren't a great time to be alive, probably nine out of ten would say yes. It was, I don't know, and you know. When they say this, when they say the Middle Ages were not a great time, they don't mean that, you know, they were, I don't know, they were, they were, they couldn't do science or anything. They're not thinking about these things. They're not thinking about the scientific capabilities, processes, aims, methods, whatever. What people are thinking is the social and political context, the day-to-day -day life of these individuals, really. Yeah, I suspect that's right. When we think of the Middle Ages, we think of knights, castles, yeah. Muddy battles, crusades. yeah, all the films, all the you know, yeah, um, but no one's doing a film about a monk, no, in a no not yet. It would be a great film, I mean, I would it could love, be a great film. Jude yeah. Law would be a wonderful John Westwick, and um, <laughs> interesting show, yeah, I know, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, you heard it here first, um, <laughs> but what people really think of, honestly, is lack of hygiene. No antibiotics, no affordable steaks, or what, whatever vegan equivalent there is. Um, they think of, I don't know, no budget airline, um, beheadings in the public square, witch hunts, and so on. I do think it's quite a trend now that, on the one hand, write books about the Middle Age that begin by asking its readers to, you know, think of it in kinder terms, yet when you actually read aspects of it, it's nearly impossible not to laugh. And it, I think it's, it's you know, it's... It kind of happens throughout any single period mm. of history. One so, soon, the bar someone's gonna write a book about barbarians, and they're gonna say the same. Please don't be mean. Don't use the word barbaric. I mean, it's and honest. If you ask Greta Thunberg if twenty twenty one was a good year to be alive, she would have said no. It was horrible. Mm. But if you ask Steven Pinker, he would say, Oh no, you know, things have never been better. Best time. Um, exactly, and and I think that's just something. I mean, by all means, write these books. But in my personal opinion, I, I'm, I'm kind of sick of being told that, oh, please don't mean to me, just, because there is nothing solid, you know, things are A and B. And I actually have a few examples, right. if I may. I, I think you have to, after this devastating <laughs> critique, to a whole, a whole uh, area Corp corpus of yeah, historical non-fiction. <laughs> Look, this, this is, this is from, from Fires of Lost. And again, I love the book. I've yeah. probably told you about this before. You have. And I haven't read you the quote. So the book begins with the same thing, please be nice to the Middle Ages. And a few pages down the line, literally, I have the following. Quote, According to Albertus Magnus, the male penis is a sort of perfected and complete thing which moves to the exterior, whereas the womb, along with the parts associated with it, it's a sort of incomplete and imperfect thing that is restrained internally. So, and then here, the writer is kind enough to explain what this means in case you missed it. It was theoretically possible for a woman to turn into a man if she overheated. 
forcing her internal organs out of the body. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's on. that's some strong anatomy knowledge yeah, there. Come on, I mean, yeah. Okay, so people in the Middle Ages may have been really good at precisely measuring the position of a star. But, some very but privileged they, people, yeah. but they didn't have <laughs> the most sophisticated knowledge about other things. Anatomy, in particular. Okay, but yeah. I have to try and save Seb's book. Here. Yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah, carry on. Right, so. I think you're absolutely right about how people think about the Middle Ages. And I think you're also right that it probably wouldn't be a good time to be alive. But, you know, isn't it good to have books I, by Seb who sort of say there are some good things I actually well? have another quote here okay. involving a recipe to grow a woman's breasts. So you're going to love this. It involves blood from the testicles of a castrated pig. Okay, and I, th- I think that's all we have time for today. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I agree. You've, I done, just... you've done a great job advertising <laughs> Catherine Harvey's book, though. Yeah, <laughs> Should yeah, I've interviewed her as this, well? This is probably this is where I stopped receiving an invitation <laughs> for a few terms. Just for the record, I love both books. Especially my, uh, Seth Fox's book. That was one. My lawyer is looking at me right now. <laughs> And uh, I just I'd like to note that the I views expressed it. by Jay are entirely his own and not representative of yeah. expand. No one is ever going to hide me from my publishers when they're being like, oh, why are you around? No, 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 no. I'm sure we'll be seeing you around again. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you to all our listeners for sticking with us this far. Uh, please make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. You can find all information on upcoming interviews and ways to get involved at the website www.pleaseexpand.com. And follow me on Twitter, at PleaseExpand, with just one E between the words. My next interview will be with Professor David Wooten on his much acclaimed book, The Invention of Science. That's a wonderful book, mate. It is a wonderful book, isn't it? Where we will talk about whether science can be said to have been invented at a specific point in history, and what the necessary conditions of the invention are. So, quite topical, given that I know, it is, yes, yes, yes. Jay, thank you once more for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, it was a pleasure. That's all from us, bye-bye. Bye-bye.